0: Open your Bibles to John chapter 13. John 13, we're in verse 36 today. Following on our series through the last words of Jesus Christ, the upper room discourse. Our Lord has washed the feet of his disciples. In the most remarkable account in religious history... The Son of God washes feet. You can't find anything like that in the Bhagavad Gita. The Hindu scriptures. You can't find anything like that in the Islamic scriptures. And upon reflection, I'm not sure you can find anything like that in the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. It's here in the New Covenant that our Lord reveals the glories of this new body that he's founding. And he shows their ethics. Ethics. By washing feet of men who are below him. Then he discusses with Peter what it means. And then he deals with the hypocrite, Judas. Last week we had the joy of looking at the new commandment. It's new because it's given to the church. Love one another, those in the church. Reminding us that believers have a unique responsibility to love one another... In a way that they don't love those who are outside Christ. And it's also new because it was given to follow our Lord's example. Love one another as I have loved you. But now with that as a background. And in the conclusion of this 13th chapter. There is the third expression of the Apostle Peter. That is Peter is going to speak for the third time. In fact, Peter's words are the only words of a disciple recorded in the upper room discourse except for Philip in chapter 14. Peter speaks three times. And John records his words. Here's the third time he's speaking. He asks two questions and Jesus gives two answers. You can see that in verse 36 and verse 37. Peter says to him, Verse 37, Peter says to him, each time he asks a question, but it's really not a question. It's a statement. And our Lord replies in the same fashion. So what we have here this morning is a brief discussion. Peter asks a question which isn't a question. Jesus replies, as you see in verse 36... Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward, later on. Verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you? Verse 38, will you really lay down your life for me? It's as if these two men, Jesus of Nazareth and Peter the fisherman, the owner of a family business with men working for him, because later on he goes back and they were washing the nets when he comes back. So he has men working underneath him, and this bold, strong man who will be used so greatly by God has the temerity. That's misplaced boldness. That's John Bunyan's too bold. Peter has the temerity to say to the Son of God who just washed his feet and rebuked him, No, no, no. Well, your plan isn't quite right, you don't quite understand some things. Let's see briefly what is said in these two questions, these two statements by Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Why did he say that? Because in verse 33, Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus had already told him, you can't come where I'm going. Peter says, wait, 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 let's, where are you going exactly? Exactly. I'd like to measure this up, Jesus, because if you'll tell me where you're going, I actually think I can follow you. I think I am bold enough, strong enough, smart enough, spiritual enough. I think I pray enough. Others maybe not, but I can do it. It's a statement. And Jesus answers accordingly in verse 36. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Isn't that what he just said in verse 33? It's the same word in the original. It's not possible for you to come. Verse 33, where I'm going, you cannot. Not possible for you to come. Same thing in verse 36. Where I'm going, you are not able to follow me now, but you'll come afterward. That tells us right there that he's speaking about death. I'm going to die, Peter, and it's not possible for you to follow me now. That, by the way, teaches us That it's not possible to die until God says you will die. Jesus was going to death and Peter was in a risky place. Because when those men come out to grab Jesus, do you think they might do the same thing to Peter? Peter, Jesus says to him, I prophesy it's not possible for you to follow me in death right now, Peter. That's the first of two prophecies. But you will follow me later. Peter's going to die later on for the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 37. Peter says to him, Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. You see, Peter knows that Jesus is talking about death. Peter knows what's happening here. Jesus says, I'm going to die and you can't die with me now. Peter says, no, you don't understand. There's something you don't understand, Lord. It's that I am willing to die for you. You've got to see how much I love you. You see, your problem, Jesus, is that you don't understand how much I'm committed to your cause. You don't get what a good Christian I am, Jesus. You've got to learn something here, and I can help you with this. You had missed, you had been able to see into their hearts, but my heart... You just missed something, so let me make it clear to you. Let me put all my cards out, because you couldn't see what, what was happening. I'm actually a better person than you think I am, Jesus. That's what he says in verse 37. Why can't I follow you now? I will die for you. I'll give the ultimate expression. Others won't do it, but I'll do it. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33... Peter even clarifies. He even says to them, though all men forsake you, I will not forsake you. And there's a hint in there, I'm not sure about these other ones. These other ten, I can't speak on their behalf because I've seen some things. I traveled with that guy. I, I, I went all around Israel with him when you sent out the, the twelve disciples in Luke chapter nine, you sent us out. I, I can't tell you about those guys. Let me just speak for myself. I'm going to follow you and pay the ultimate price. How proud. How too bold. How too quick to speak. In verse 38, Jesus answers him with a question. Which is really a statement again. Will you lay down your life for my sake? Oh, really? That's really the depth of your love for me. Will you do that Peter? Because not not twice in the original he says not. It's the strongest way to negate something in the Greek language. Don't ever think this will happen Peter. You will never. Or the co- the rooster will not crow before you have denied me three times. It will never happen. You're going to deny me, Peter. Not only are you not going to love me, not only are you not going to give a million rand of offering, or a hundred thousand, or a hundred, or one rand, actually you're going to take a withdrawal from the bank. You talk as if you're going to make a deposit of a million. But not only are you not going to make any deposit, you're going to make a withdrawal. Not only are you not an upstanding citizen, you are actually a dastardly criminal. That's the background. And from that, we reduce this lesson. We are not as strong... As wise or as spiritual as we think we are. That's the point of this passage. That's the point of this message. We are not as strong or as wise or as spiritual as we think we are. And there are unique ways that that will approach men. And there are unique ways that will approach ladies. And there are unique ways that will affect the children here today. And there are unique ways that will affect the aged. And so I'd like to unpack this passage in three ways. First of all, how do we see spiritual pride? What are are the evidences of spiritual pride? I'm going to give you four. Four evidences from this passage of spiritual pride. Secondly, how dangerous is spiritual pride? Again, I'd like to give you four or five dangers, marks that spiritual pride is unusually dangerous. And then finally, I'd like to give us a cure today. How can we cure spiritual pride? And I'll offer that with five cures. Four evidences, and when I give these evidences, if you have come here today with goodwill, if you have come here today saying, I want to learn the Bible, I want to be a Christian, I want to please God, then I ask you, will you take those four evidences and ask yourself with each one of them, do these apply to me, or better yet, in what ways do each one apply to me? And then with the second point, when we discuss the dangers, I'd really like you to say, how have I overlooked the lion in my house? How have I overlooked the snake in the corner? How have I overlooked the COVID that's right here in my house? And then finally, let's go find the cure. Number one. The manifestation that shows itself in four ways. First of all, it will correct the Lord. Aristotle teaches us in his logic. That there are different ways to make propositions. You can make a proposition by saying all men are mortal. Or you can make the same proposition by saying. "Are, Are all men not mortal? You see, I've asked it in a question. Which kind of changes the rhetorical power, but not the logical power. Peter is making statements when he says to the Lord, Why can't I follow you? He's correcting the Lord, and it's not the first time. Look back in verse 9, chapter 13, verse 9. Lord, don't wash my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And in verse 8. You will never wash me. Twice. You're not going to wash me? And then when he says, no, I'm going to wash your feet. Okay, no, no. Then don't do it your way. Again, change and do it my way. I think I've said this before. Peter must have been the first American. No, he corrects the one that he calls the Lord. This is not the first or the second or the third time. Because in Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23, when Peter had just said... You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my Father which is in heaven. The very next verse. Jesus says he began to reveal to them how he must go to Jerusalem, suffer and be killed by the Pharisees and high priests. And Peter says, No, no, that will not happen to you, Lord. And what does Jesus say in verse 23, Matthew 16, 23? Get behind me, Satan, He calls Peter Satan because of this rebuke. This is not the only time either. In Acts chapter 10 verse 14. Even after being filled with the spirit. Even after seeing God convert thousands of people. Peter still can't conquer this stubborn habitual sin. And when God lets down a sheet with all the clean and unclean animals on it. He says arise Peter kill and eat. And in Acts chapter 10 verse 14. Peter says not so Lord. In song, it would be Aysona Hosi. You know, if you speak Tonga, you can't say Ayshona to the Hosi. You can't say Ayshona to your father. No one says Asizonikotsi. But Peter does. Spiritual pride manifests itself in a correcting spirit. Jonah did this in the Old Testament. Jonah chapter 4, verse 9. The Lord says to him. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And again, thank you, Aristotle. That's not a question. That's a statement. Jonah, you're wrong to be angry. But he's doing it so gently. He handles us with such gentleness. Do you have a good reason to be angry, Isaac? And Jonah responds, I do have a good reason to be angry. Do you see what anger does? It makes your mind not even able to get the simplest questions and statements from your superiors. And here Jonah rebukes. Jonah's not the only one. Unbelievers do it as well. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, the chief priests come to Jesus and rebuke him. Again, in fact, Matthew 21 and 22, just before Jesus goes to the cross, it's in the final week, the Passion Week, the week that we begin today. In the Passion Week, in Matthew chapter 21 and 22, seven times the chief priests and the Pharisees come to Jesus and try to trick him. And they ask questions that aren't questions. Is it lawful to pay money to, to Caesar, hoping to trick him? Every question they bring is not a question. It's an attempt to trap him. Hey, you know about the man who had seven, seven um, uh, wives? He, sorry, the wife who had seven husbands. And then whose, whose wife will she be in the judgment? That's not a question. You're trying to trap him. And, they, and it's written clearly in Matthew 22. <laughs> They're rebuking the Lord. Do we do that? Do we correct the Lord's plan? When God has revealed himself, do we say, no, 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 that's not quite, you don't quite get it. Actually, let me help you out because there's something you missed. As if omnipotence and omniscience can miss. Second evidence. Spiritual pride speaks about great commitment and ability. Brothers and sisters, beware big talkers. Beware those people who write checks with their mouths that their character cannot cash. Beware those people who speak a million rand and live ten rand. Luke chapter 18 verses 10 to 14 is the story of the Pharisee and the publican. The publican was a known sinner. And it says in Luke 18, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray the one a Pharisee, the other a publican, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of everything I possess. But here there is, I'm not like this other man, this sinner over here. And the sinner would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest and said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Beware of the men who talk well about themselves. Men love to talk well about themselves. That's why Proverbs 27 verse 2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Even when you do something well, It's best just to close your mouth and let someone else notice how well you've done. People will sometimes say to me, oh, are you fluent in songa? And my answer is, ask a songa. When I'm not there and they'll tell you the truth. If I'm there, they'll say, oh, he's so good, he's so good. But if I'm not there, they'll tell, oh, yeah, well, he, ah, yo. He always, I, I just said, The song will tell you, he always has to say, what did you say? What did you say? What did you say? Beware of big talkers because spiritual pride loves to talk more than it can perform. It will act interested in spiritual things without paying the price. It will talk about evangelism without actually evangelizing. It will talk about praying without actually being able to list a specific answer to prayer. And if he's pushed into a corner, the spiritually, pride big talk, spiritually proud big talker will lie. And he won't even realize he's lying. He'll think back quickly. Oh, really? You love to pray. Can you tell me an answer to prayer that you've had? And then very quickly, without even missing a beat, he'll remember uh, 10 years ago. Um, and then he'll start to tell a story and he'll embellish the details. Have you ever done that? You add two or three details into the story. You remember, it was, I think, four years ago. Actually, it was 12. That, uh, you know, I said this. Well, I actually didn't quite say it that way. You've replayed it in your mind 15 times because you're so proud. And each time you replay it, you get a little bit more clever in your answer. Isn't that the way we are? You have an argument with your wife. And for the next three days, you're replaying the argument in your mind. And each time you say, yeah, 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 that's what I said. And your answers become more clever and her answers become lower. It's because of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride talks about commitment to Christ without ever joining a local body. It is understandable if you are saying, we want to understand the doctrines of the church. We want to understand so that our feet are planted firmly. But there is a kind of man who has... As Jacob said of the tribe of Reuben, unstable as water, he will never excel. Because the tribe of Reuben could not be consistent, he would never do great things. And there is a kind of man who always talks about being a great Christian, but doesn't have the consistency or the integrity or the backbone to say, here I stand. Come high water, come flood, come rain, come drought. I'm not moving. Third mark of spiritual pride. It will forget previous rebukes and failures. Listen to these. Number of times Peter was rebuked. Matthew 8 verse 26. Jesus said to him. Oh you of little faith. Why did you fear? That was when they were all in the boat. And they said we're going to die. In Matthew 14 verse 30. Peter's walking on the water. And he begins to sink. Jesus grabs him and says, Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter, you're a man of little faith. That's two times the Lord's called you that. In Matthew 16, 23, the passage I've already quoted. Get behind me, Satan. And right here in this passage, Right? Peter is rebuking Jesus, forgetting that moments earlier, he rebuked Jesus. And Jesus says, no, if I don't wash you, you're not a Christian. Okay, okay, then don't do it your way. Do it my way. No, I'm not doing it your way. It's my way. I am the Lord. How many times do I have to tell you this to get this lesson through your head? Do you have children? How many times have you tried to communicate to them that you're the boss, not that child? And they don't seem to get the message. They're like Peter. Or maybe Peter is like them. Fourth evidence of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride thinks better about itself than about others. In another hour, they will be walking through the garden of Gethsemane. And in Luke... I'm sorry, Matthew 26, verse 33. While walking through the garden... Jesus is going to say to Peter again, you're going to deny me three times. This is not here because this is happening in the upper room. And then again, while they're walking through the garden, Peter says, I will die for you even though all these others will leave you. And Jesus says, that's not true. Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Spiritual pride always thinks that it's better than others. Listen to this wonderful verse years ago. Uh, a young lady shared this verse to me while I was in college. And it has been such a help to me. I just want to encourage you even to memorize it if you need to. If this is, if this is the verse that ministers to your heart today, then maybe the whole service for you is designed for this verse. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are found to be unwise. Did you follow that? Paul the Apostle says, we do not compare ourselves with others or count ourselves in light of others. But other people, these false teachers, you know false teachers because they're always looking at each other. Oh, what kind of church does he have? Oh, what does he do? What kind does he have? How does he do it? And they, they consider themselves very good if they can surpass in a competition someone else. If you compete with other people for spirituality... You are found to be a fool. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12. Measuring yourself by yourselves and comparing yourselves among yourselves. You'll only uh, reach uh, the status of fool. Spiritual pride shows itself in these ways. Is it dangerous? Let me list these for you. Spiritual pride turned a ruling angel into the prince of demons. Spiritual pride made Satan. Spiritual pride of necessity brought the lake of fire into existence. I've quoted this verse before, Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It was made for them. And it was spiritual pride that created Satan and brought about the lake of fire. Oh, it is a terribly dangerous thing. It will turn a man into a liar. It will turn a good husband into a tyrant. It will turn a poor man who never held a job in his life and had a very difficult childhood... It will turn that man who served as a soldier for two years in very difficult, unjust situation where he was wounded and received a medal of honor. It will turn that man into a politician and then into the tyrant Adolf Hitler. Spiritual pride will do what no other force can do. It will even make you an enemy of God. James 4 verse 6. God resists the proud. Literally says, God stands against the proud. There's the proud man. There's the man who thinks too well of himself. There's the man who corrects the Lord. There's the man who talks more than he performs. There's the man who thinks so well of himself. There's the man whose head is so large, it takes a double door to get inside the church. And God stands up as his enemy and resists him. How dangerous is pride. Listen to this third one. Pride is so dangerous because it slips in insensibly. It's the thief who gets in without making a sound. It's the cat's tread that you can't hear. It's the silent entrance. Peter had just recommitted himself to the Lord in chapter 13 verse 9. Okay Lord, I'll follow you. You wash me. And then within a few moments because spiritual pride was in there he's rebuking the Lord again. In this way it is the worst kind of enemy because it sneaks in turns off all the alarms shuts off all the infrared beams turns off the electric fence opens the gate and unlocks the doors. So that every other sin can come inside. It is amazingly dangerous because Spiritual pride always comes with other sins. And that's the fourth great danger. Spiritual pride blinds you to other sins. A woman with spiritual pride imagines that others are the problems in her relationships. There's always this tension with my daughter. There's always this tension with my mother, with my husband. Those people are so hard to get along with. Spiritual pride... A husband with spiritual pride is harsh and critical toward his wife, and yet he treats himself as if he's a delicate cupcake, and he'll say things like, oh, I'm always so hard on myself, you know, you know, you gotta be a man, you gotta be hard on yourself, and in reality, he treats himself as if he's this pretty little gentle flower, and he treats his wife as if she's a soccer ball. A wife with spiritual pride wants her career and her agenda to have at least equal importance with her husbands. A young man with spiritual pride compares himself to his brother or his friend and then excuses a hard heart or a prayerless life. A young man with spiritual pride will say, well, but, but look at him. Oh, look at her. Well, at least I'm doing better than my father or my mother or my younger brother. A man with spiritual pride fancies himself to be able to handle movies with filth. Amazingly, I have a book in my shelf written by an excellent theologian who sadly is caught in spiritual pride toward the end of a very large book when he says... Should Christians watch movies with adultery and nudity? And he says in that book, though he has a PhD and has written... No, actually, he doesn't have a PhD, this particular man. But he's written many books, he's well-respected. And he's written many good things. This man, because of his spiritual pride, says, Some people can't handle these kinds of movies. But other people can. And he goes on to describe how he's able to do this. And the answer to that is spiritual pride. Run from sin. What did Joseph say when Potiphar's wife came and tempted him? You know, I can take this. It's no problem. Go ahead and tempt me. He ran leaving his coat. Put on your techies, man. Get in your jet if you've got one. Get away. Isn't that what Solomon says in Proverbs 7? When you see that girl, don't even walk on the street on which she lives. Imagine that. You've got to walk from your part of town up to the central business district and you say, well, I'm just gonna walk up the street. Well, you know there's that girl. Just last night, driving on my street, there were several girls dressed so terribly and I was with my son that I thought, I think I'll take a different road home if I see these girls here consistently. It's, it's the way home, you have to drive out? I'll drive out of the way. Spiritual pride says, oh, I can handle it. No problem. Let it come. I'm a man. I can take this kind of thing. You know, this is the way things are. A man like that will fall. A godly pastor that I knew in whose church I preached when he was probably in his late 60s. He had planted a number of churches. And the church in which I preached had probably 400 people when I was probably 21, 22 as a college student. That man was known and respected in all the Baptist churches where I grew up and had preached in some of the largest assemblies, thousands of people. He had planted, as I mentioned, a number of churches. In his early 70s, he was recommended by his doctor to take some wine for an ailment. He opened the door and was later on caught by the police twice for public drunkenness. And then he was caught In questionable situations with the opposite sex. He later on apologized. We thank God for that. But how would you like to live 50 years for Christ. And then get to the end and say. I thought I could take it. That's not the only story. Like that. Regarding a pastor. And alcohol. That I could tell. Spiritual pride says. Others can't do it, but I I can handle this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Let him who thinks that he is standing, watch out, because he might fall. One of the most famous sermons in the history of the world is Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached from Deuteronomy, in which he says, he preaches from the simple text, His foot will slide in time. In time, his foot's going to slide. Brothers and sisters, spiritual pride will make you say, I'll never slip. I won't slip in this way. Recently, my wife and my son were helping get our dear brother here up the steps in the rain. And she slipped. And I felt so bad. I came and helped her. And I thought to myself, you know women, the very next week, I was doing it and I slipped and hurt myself. Brothers and sisters, spiritual pride is a great danger because it blinds you to other sins. Peter is about to deny Christ because his spiritual pride blinded him from the humility that would allow him to maintain purity and righteousness. Let me ask you, when you confess your sins, do you suddenly have a great difficulty in seeing other sins to confess? That is the chief mark of spiritual pride. When you come in the morning to pray and you say, oh God, forgive me for, well, what exactly? That is the mark of spiritual pride. If you come to a place where you say, forgive me for, I'm not sure exactly what, then the next thing you should say is, for my spiritual pride that has blinded me to see all the sins that my wife can see, all the sins that my fellow church members can see, all the sins that you can see, that I have blinded myself to by this pattern of Spiritual pride. Spiritual pride causes you to justify and rationalize habitual sins. Spiritual pride reduces the severity of your sins in your own mind, all the while raising the severity of other people's sins. So that when he does something wrong, I shake my head and say, ah, oh, ah, uh, ah, uh, you know those guys. Hey, those people, you know, that's the way the Vedamans are. You just, uh, that's the way they are. Whereas I might be doing the same or worse, and in my mind, oh, well, it's no big deal. When a prideful man is also lazy, that is, when he has the second sin, because of his pride, he he adds laziness. When he is lazy, he justifies it by saying, well, I did so many other good things that I just need to to rest. It's true, we do need to rest. I'm not having a problem with rest. My question is, when you're lazy, when you're actually lazy, spiritual pride will make you say, oh, no, no, no. It, It might be wrong for him, but for me right now, this is just my needed rest. We need our rest, but we don't need laziness. How can you tell the difference? You better be careful because the, the spiritually proud man will call laziness rest. The spiritually proud man will call lust. Well, it's only a small thing. It's only a natural thing. I didn't act on it. I just thought it. And it was so briefly. I mean, that's I mean, God made us that way. One man even told me, it's not wrong. To lust, because God made beauty, and we have to enjoy and admire beauty. Spiritual pride. Let's look finally at the cure. How can spiritual pride be cured? Spiritual, sorry, Peter didn't see that it was a habitual sin. He didn't see that he was about to deny the Lord Jesus. He was blinded. It was dangerous. What's the cure? Number one, accept everything Jesus says without a debate. Because in verse 33, Jesus already said, you cannot come now. He told them that explicitly. You cannot do this. And what does Peter say? I'm sure I can. Did Peter accept the words of the Lord Jesus? He did not. Many people today do not accept the words of the Lord Jesus. I'm just going to list topics. You ask yourself, do I accept the plain words of the Bible? Eternal conscious torment. Revelation 14 verse 10 and 11. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever day and night. And they have no rest day nor night. Are those words hard for you to accept? 6-day creation. Revelation, I'm sorry, Exodus 20, for in 6 days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested on the 7th day. For 6 days you shall labor and do all your work, but the 7th is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. How many days do we work? Six. How many days do we rest? One. If you want to say that those six days are millions or billions of years, then you should be resting for millions and billions of years as well. Are you willing to accept what it says? Well, I don't understand. Well, but I, it doesn't fit. Are you willing to accept what it says? No divorce. If you read Mark chapter 10, there's no exception for divorce. If you read Luke chapter 16, there is no exception. It clearly says no divorce, no remarriage. If you read Romans 7, there's no exception for divorce. If you read Matthew, listen to this, Matthew 19, 1 to 8, there's no exception for divorce. Jesus says repeatedly, no divorce, no divorce, no divorce, no remarriage. But then... The Pharisees, I'm sorry, the disciples privately say to him, Well, but what about this and this? Jesus gives one exception. I think we've made that one exception into the rule. So we have 50, 60, 70% of people getting divorced. Mark 10, no divorce. Romans 7, no divorce. No divorce, no divorce. But suddenly, now it's 70% of the people. Yeah, no problem. Are we willing to even look at what the Bible says about that? Or is it too painful or too difficult? What about the doctrine of election? This can divide churches. Some people do not even want the Bible verses to be read. that say, for example, Ephesians 1 verse 4. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That, I just quoted the words of the Bible. A godly preacher once said... You can offend some people just by quoting Bible verses. Like this John 16, verse 65. I'm sorry, John 6, verse 65. No one can come to me unless it is given to him by the Father. Election. Let's get more practical. Now you say these things. What about practical issues? What about spanking children? It's in the Old Testament in Proverbs and Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Hosea and First Kings but only there oh except for Hebrews that's in the new covenant well we don't do that I'm just asking if you're willing to accept what it says what about abortion what about male headship Men being the head. What about rules for speaking in tongues? I'm not even discussing all of tongues, but what about the fact that it's explicit in 1 Corinthians 14, no more than two or three. There must be an interpreter. No women. If someone wants to say, I speak in tongues and I follow the rules, okay. My problem is, I know a lot of people and have been in religious gatherings called churches where people are entirely breaking the rules and they seem to have no even interest that God spoke about this matter. Spiritual pride is that kind of response that says, I don't care what he said. When Jesus says, you cannot follow me, and Peter says, well, but actually, it's something you don't know. We could do more worldliness Romans 12 2 do not be conformed to the world I'll just let you define that whatever you consider the world are you like them I don't even have to define it I'll let you define it but you will offend people even by quoting that verse do not be conformed to the world or James 4 verse 4 you adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is the en- makes yourself the enemy of God? 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The first cure for spiritual pride is just to accept what the Bible says. The final category that I'll offer you that is the heaviest, and so I saved it for the last, is this. Have you ever made a list through your Bible of what the Bible says about my heart and your heart apart from Jesus Christ? I have made a list. I've got 25 verses. I'll forward them or email them to you if you want or I'll bring copies tonight if you want. From Genesis to the maps, I've marked in my Bible... Sinfulness of man. Why? Because I am wired to think that I'm actually a pretty good guy. And if I don't see those verses reminding me outside of Christ, you can do nothing. I can't do anything. Romans 5, 6. When we were without strength, Christ died for what kind of people? The ungodly. I wasn't a good man before Conversion. I was a bad man. <clears throat> I think it's that doctrine that keeps our church small more than any other. Because the natural man loves the doctrine of total depravity the way cats love a bath. They don't want anything to do with it. Because naturally we hate humility. But it's that humility that will save our souls. It's that humility that comes from Christ. Second solution. Look carefully at all the terrible things that men did in the Bible. Peter was about to deny the Lord. Look at what the believers did. Peter was about to deny the Lord. David, Bathsheba, Uriah... Then again at the end of his life, numbering the people. Look at Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived and ruined his life by women. Look at Cain and Abel. Look at Judas. Look at Herod who murdered the babies. And don't say for a moment, those people were bad, but me. That's spiritual pride that is the whole subject of this sermon. The whole subject of this passage, don't ever say, well, Herod murdered the babies, but had I been in Herod's place, things would have been sharp in Bethlehem. That's the spiritual pride that you're deceiving yourself about. Cure number three, remember that Christ prays for his people. Listen to this, this is very important. In Luke 22, verse 32, it happens at the exact same time as John 13. What we're just explaining, at the exact same time when Peter is proud, and perhaps it's a response to Peter's pride. Peter says, I will not deny you. And in Luke twenty-two, thirty-two, 32, Jesus says, Peter, Satan has desired to take you that he could sift you like wheat. He wants to use you and waste you and ruin you. But what does Jesus say? But what has he done for him? I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Your faith would have failed and my faith would have failed. I am not a great man. I'm a man who's been prayed for. He prayed for me that my faith wouldn't fail. Why have I made it to 42? Two weeks shy of 43. Why have I made it this far? He prayed for me. Why have you made it to where you are? Because he loves you and prays for you. And that's the fourth cure that I close with. How can you conquer spiritual pride? But remember that Jesus loves you. Look what he did for Peter. He told Peter in advance. He predicted the future. And when Peter went out and wept bitterly, Matthew 26 verse 75, Peter went out and wept, oh, look what I've done. Just about six hours after this, Peter weeps for his sin. The Lord Jesus looks at him, has mercy on him and restores him. He has mercy on sinners who will weep over their sin. He doesn't cast them out. John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never throw away. He is rich with love. He's the friend of sinners. He is love himself because it's written twice in the Bible. God is love. And I'm going to share more of this tonight. But in John 17, verse 23, he says, the love that you have loved me may be in them. John 17, 23, the love that the father has. As for the son, he offers to sinners like you. If you will just say, I'm broken, I'm undone. I'm as bad as Peter and worse. But oh Lord Jesus, if you will love a sinner, then love me. If you'll pray that prayer, he'll hear you. That's what it means when it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It does not mean the man who in a service like this says, okay, now we're gonna close. Before we close, who wants to be a Christian? Pray with me. Oh Jesus, please save me. Come into my heart, amen. It doesn't mean that. It means if you go to Christ in humility and say, I'm undone like Peter, but if you love any sinner, won't you love me? I'm a sinner. You talk that way, he'll hear your prayer now, not tomorrow, not the next hour. He'll answer you, he'll save you, he'll move that mountain of guilt and throw it into the sea as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 tells us. And that is the wonderful hope For all those, like ourselves, caught up in spiritual pride. Because I close with this. Spiritual pride not only hits the unbeliever, it hits the believer. Here it was Peter. May God save us. Whether we have been proud in the past or proud today or in our pride tomorrow. Father, save us from our sins and give us humility. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for hearing us and thank you for praying for us. Wash us, cleanse us, make us whole and new in the blood of the Lamb. Show us our sins, reveal to us where we have been blinded, and grant that we would keep your law. In Jesus' name, amen.